Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we have back on the American Shoreline Podcast, who will now be the most frequent guest ever in our first 200-whatever shows, or 150 shows, or however many shows we've done. I think it's I think it's over 200. I don't know. Uh, but Dr. Rob Young, the the director of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University in Cullowhee, North Carolina. Rob Young is a specialist on coastal development and the right practices to to uh, respond to the challenges on the American shoreline. Todd, I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. On last week's show, show we uh, looked at three case studies and kind of how the uh, coastal armoring discussion was changing. Seems to maybe. It be. seems to maybe be. And so uh, who better than yeah, to follow add- that up? Then it would be like going from, I don't know, a, a, a little salad from last week. And today right. we're going to sit down the main with course. the main course, Rob Young. Really looking forward to the conversation. But first, we'll have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Well, Rob, it's great to have you on. And I got to tell you, I remember back, Tyler and I were talking about this, the ASBPA meeting in Myrtle Beach back in October of 2019. Absolutely. And you got up on the stage in a panel discussion and shook the rafters just a little bit. And uh, the point you were making is I am asking and demanding that shoreline retreat and other methods be incorporated into federal decision making and thinking when it comes to responding to erosion and sea level rise. Is that a fair characterization of your ASBPA point of view? That was certainly part of the message that I uh, d- tried to deliver to that august body was that um, certainly when they're doing their alternatives analysis and project de- development, they should at least take the idea of relocating structures away from the hazards seriously, which I don't think that they really do yet. Well, and I think, as I recall, I think your thing was, <clears throat> I think you said, I hope in 10 years that this is seriously part of the discussion in federal shoreline investigations. And I'm, it has been less than six months, Rob, and I think you've already made an impact. 
looking around the American shoreline, we see a couple of major decisions that uh, maybe you were prescient here. Maybe you're way ahead of the game. Is uh, the decision by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, uh, New York District, to suspend the New York and New Jersey Harbor and Tributaries Focus Area Feasibility Study. This is the post-Superstorm Sandy project that the Corps has uh, been working on, and the options, the alternatives on the table were uh, were principally, I think, or entirely structural, $119 billion possibly, big uh, flood walls and gate systems. And then recently, and uh, down in, in the Florida Keys, the Corps of Engineers indicated to the community that structural options really were not appropriate or available to respond to the risks of rising season storms in Key West. And I thought, well, that sounds like Rob Young. Have we turned the corner, Rob? Uh, wow um you know i certainly am not sure that i want to take uh any credit for either one of those decisions although they certainly do give us quite a bit to talk about uh and you know in the case of abandoning the the new york new jersey study you know i don't want to be getting uh nasty phone calls from chuck schumer's office so please i had nothing to do with it i promise (laughs) Um, right. I know that's an, and, that's a, that's an unusual one. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that there were a number of problems with where that study was going that have recently been highlighted in you know, like an article in the New York times. Um, there was some sticker shock from the price tag for some of the proposed structural options. Uh, and also the amount of time it would simply take to, uh, actually build out some of the proposed projects and you know i i don't think it would be a bad idea in that new york new jersey study to go back to the drawing board a little bit and um, look at spending that same amount of money but on much smaller scale resilience and mitigation projects and in some places maybe taking a step back um i don't think i don't think that that's what's going to happen unfortunately hmm. um, you know somebody still needs to take a serious look at the vulnerability of those incredibly important parts of the u.s shoreline um so you know if what we're just doing now is walking away from any investigation that's problematic but yes some of the ideas that were in that uh study were of course also problematic so i'm, I'm not quite sure that that leaves us in any satisfactory place with this particular pullout and i'm not quite sure what the future plans will be uh looking down in monroe county florida in the keys um i think that the uh recent examination serious examination of primarily non-structural options for reducing storm damage and increasing resilience in the keys is is really just dealing with the reality of that really uh, unique part of the U.S. shoreline. Um, you know, this is this is an area where just being able to physically locate seawalls, breakheads, sorry, breakwaters in in a in a sensible way uh, was very difficult. Uh, it's you know very complex shoreline. Uh, rising sea level is going to bring water up underneath all of that infrastructure um, very quickly and easily. So it's a pretty unique place 
where uh, I think the lessons that we might learn there don't necessarily extend directly to the rest of the U.S. shoreline. Nevertheless, you yeah. know, I think that the having the Corps of Engineers uh, very seriously recommend that non-structural options, elevating buildings, buying out buildings, floodproofing buildings with some uh, corollary uh, protection of US-1, uh, I think you know. I think that at, at least that means they're having to price some of these things out and think about how it works on the community level and uh, learn how to make that pitch to a group of citizens and to county commissioners uh, because they're going to have to be doing it in other places whether we want to or not. So it's you know I think that it's a positive development and the folks in Monroe County may not wish to be the guinea pigs for how. Uh, this new approach might work in the rest of the U.S., um, but you know, it, it is a pretty natural place to take a look at from a geological perspective and from uh, a hazard vulnerability perspective and say, you know, there just really aren't any great options for structurally protecting all of this infrastructure. You know, it's interesting, Rob, because, uh, you know, I th I th first of all, I, I completely agree with you that it is a really unique place, but, uh, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, NASA technology when we're trying to go to the moon, we invent a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, techniques and, and technologies that end up having all sorts of utility in missions and, and, uh, applications in the civilian world. Um, and hopefully the, uh, process of rising, figuring out how to meet those challenge and the challenges in the keys will produce some new methods and you know practices that will be applied elsewhere. I think that that's good. I'm 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 hopeful because to my knowledge, it's this is the first time that this has happened. Is that well, you know, Rob? We wanted to ask you that, and uh, and I, I think you're quite right. It's, it's, it, we can't extrapolate from what happened in New York, New Jersey study in the suspension. It seems that there were some undercurrents of influence, perhaps, in the perspective of the president weighed into that. Who knows? Uh, and the and the unique uh, sort of geology of the Keys, but you know, in the past, I think the Corps and the American public has been quite willing to uh, double down on these bets, and even when situations were not most appropriate for shoreline armoring or beach dune restoration, we'd plow ahead. So to me, even though this little unique case of Monroe County and the Florida Keys and the, and the, and the Corps of Engineers feasibility to study recommendations uh, are, are basically retreat oriented and non-structural, uh, seems to indicate a change of attitude. In other words, a little bit of humility. Am I reading too much into it? Yes. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I think you're I mean, right. I think I am reading too much in <laughs> to be honest. I mean, you have to compare that to the fact that right now, you know, along most of the US shoreline, everybody gets a beach, you know? It's like um uh, our country's coastal It's like Oprah Winfrey, you know. Uh, so what I was just say it's like our you know, it's like our coast, country's coastal communities were all invited to a special Oprah show and the court jumped out and said, everybody gets a beach. And they're all jumping up and down and hugging each other. And uh, um, You get a little piece of paper under your seat. You've just got a $280 million federal project on Topsail Island, North Carolina. Way to go. You won today. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's two hundred thirty million dollars, but oh, okay. uh, somewhere just a little bit north of there. But uh, yeah, I mean, we we the, are using disaster funding right now to, um, at least in the first installment, provide federal funding to projects that you know have been sitting around for twenty years that nobody had thought that it was worthwhile funding in the past. And so, you know, we really are um, throwing a tremendous amount of money at uh, trying to stabilize the shoreline around the country. So, I th- you know, you, you look at these two things together and, I, you know, I think that there's uh, there's not a clear signal, right? Uh, um, I think you'd really have to be stretching it to say that we, we've changed our perspective. I do think that the Corps has certainly more strongly embraced non-structural measures like beach nourishment and dune building than they have building seawalls and revetments because, you know, I think that that's what folks want. You know, people these days in general want them to build beaches and dunes and do things like that. And the Corps has responded to that, um, to that desire. Um, but, you know, Take North Topsail, take Topsail Island, sorry, not just North Topsail, but take Topsail Island, for example. Yeah, so we're the the Corps just announced that they're going to do a $230-plus million project for that uh, lovely barrier island in North Carolina. And, you know, they're using disaster funds for that. And, you know, all I could think of to myself was, wow, just if you gave me that money to – raise homes in the unincorporated rural portions of North Carolina, (laughs) like uh, the area we call Down East, uh, which is around Cedar Island and Harkers Island, North Carolina. Some of those beautiful rural unincorporated communities, man, I could do a lot of um, flood proofing and house raising and um, resilience projects that would last a much longer period of time than building one beach. Um, And, you know, this is the basic problem I have is that we really, you know, still because we run so much of this project funding through these disaster relief bills and it's all off budget and, um, and there's almost no clear congressional oversight and guidance for this spending it, it all becomes a mystery to everybody as to, you know, who exactly is making that, who decided that we're going to spend $230 million on Thompson Island? You know, where, where, at what level was that decision made? You know, I'm sure the core districts send up their projects and somewhere in DC, somebody sits around and says, here's what we're doing. Well, the beach establishment, pretty- obviously. <laughs> well, no, in, in, in seriousness, no, Rob, I mean, it, and you know, on, on, on Topsail Island, the Surf City, I think it's called the Surf City North Topsail Beach Federal Project, which was authorized, I don't even know how many decades back to, back in the 80s maybe, or certainly was in place in the 90s. The authorized project goes way back. So th- there was this sort of setup. Of course, they never appropriated it, as you said. For some reason, it was not looked at as an appropriate investment for many years, even though Congress had authorized the project. And suddenly, you know, out of the disaster pot comes this $230 million investment. Fair question. But there is a congressional authorization that's floating in the background here. Um, And if anything, because we continue to build on barrier islands, the, 
the justification gets stronger over time. And I think, isn't that one of the problems that you have is simply the fact that we keep building in the wrong place? Well, I think that, um, you know, we, we honestly have, for the most part, built out most of our oceanfront shorelines in areas that are developable, I think, in the U.S. So um, mm. I, I, I think that um, on these oceanfront resort communities where we're doing most of the beach nourishment, it's not quite as much that we're still putting new infrastructure in the wrong places. I mean, we do that to a little bit of a degree, but really not that much. And you know, I'll be honest, I think most coastal communities um, are, are doing a reasonable job of trying to make sure that they're not creating brand new headaches for themselves. But we have this legacy of 30 years of rapid coastal development that really, you know, kicked off in the 70s and 80s and, and you know, accelerated for a couple of decades that we're now dealing with. And, um, you know, I think we have a couple thousand miles of Atlantic coast and Gulf coast shoreline that has, uh, you know, oceanfront investment property strung along it. And, um, we have not had that big hard discussion as a nation of whose responsibility is it to hold that shoreline in place? I'm not, by the way, arguing that we shouldn't be doing beach nourishment. I mean, maybe that is the best way to do it. I, you know, I just wonder, you know, to what degree is it a federal responsibility to do all of that beach nourishment and hold those shorelines in place? And, you know, there are still communities that are paying the entire cost of their beach projects. How does that really jibe with the way these projects are funded? And, you know, we need a very clear, open decision-making process. And, um, you know, to some degree, it's kind of strange the when we were funding beach nourishment projects basically as uh, sort of political pork in committees 20 years ago, it was even more clear to me than it is today as to how these decisions are being made. At least you could point the finger at individual congressmen and say, you know, he did it. She right. Did there, it. there was a dear uh, colleague letter. You could look at it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, it seems like there's some haggling between the core at, you know, in D.C., I guess, and maybe OMB and and, and then the projects are announced and um, it's not really clear what criteria were used and, and why it happens in some places and not others. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The Topsail project was uh, authorized by Congress a, a long, long time ago, just as many of the projects that were done post Sandy in New Jersey had been projects that were authorized by project by Congress and sat around for a couple of decades. And, and, um, you know, so this disaster relief funding is a great way to go pull out all of those old authorized projects and, yeah. and do them. But is it the best thing to be doing? Maybe, but you know, it's, we spend so much money and we there's no open conversation about how this should be happening. Well, we're trying to open it up a little bit here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, just ripping it wide open here. Uh, but, Rob, I, I, I do think that there is a difference, though, and I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. You know, you're right. These projects were planned and 
permitted and put on the list decades ago and then a disaster happens an appropriations bill falls in line and boom yeah down comes a big slug of cash and the projects get built and it seems like it, it, it does seem a little silly to go back to these old projects but i i also see that in these new plans the plan in uh, the keys for example i mean th- this is a this is a new approach and uh, who knows, by the way, if the, these recommendations ever get built or whatever, and maybe they won't until a disaster strikes them. God, God right. willing, it doesn't. But uh, I am curious to know, like, are you seeing I am detecting that the data points are showing that there is a change in sentiment from at least in the thought leadership quadrant, the the as I joked earlier, the beach elite, but I would say, you know, the establishment, the the beach, exactly the beach establishment, the beach intelligentsia of which you are a member, (laughs) Rob, you might be, Uh, you might be the, uh, he's in the back row. Well, yeah, he's he's throwing, he's he's throwing ideas out from left field. But I mean, the thing is, I, I am curious, like I am, I do think Rob, that your corner is getting, gaining, uh, attention and traction and traction. I might even count myself a member of a follower of yours. I mean, are you feeling wind in your sails over here in the in the out of in left field? I because I think I'm detecting it. I'm seeing the flag blowing up there and in the outfield and saying, hmm, little shift. Well, I you know, again, I would say that, you know, the idea that we shouldn't be tolerating uh, repeat damage in areas that are of known exposure and vulnerability is is certainly openly discussed and planned for these days. But where where I don't feel like we're making very much progress still is on the ocean front itself. So when you can show me projects where we are really talking about some taking some significant steps back on the ocean front and not continuing to use federal money to support the value of what is almost entirely investment property on the ocean front, then I will feel that we are really making some progress. And let me just play devil's advocate on the project in the keys for a second. You you know, a a lot of um, where the real vulnerability is in Monroe County are folks that are living in primary residences, a lot of uh, sort of trailer parks or communities with single wides and double wides, and um, you, you know this is to some degree um, an, an area that you may not think of the Keys this way, but you know, there's a lot of regular folks who yeah. live in, in that part of Monroe County. Um, and if all of those homes were 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 square foot investment properties owned by people who are renting them all out, then we might have tried some structural options. Ooh, wow. <laughs> we might have pumped up giant wow. beaches wow. to try and protect them. You know, what uh, I Rob see, Young bringing the fastball today. I love that. That's a hot take, baby. <laughs> What well, you know, what I often see is that we have had some success uh, in eastern North Carolina, for example, getting some poor folks out of the floodplain right. and 
and we've had some success after Sandy in working class communities in New York and New Jersey and Queens and Staten Island and place like that getting folks out of their primary residences. The New Jersey Blue Acres program, I'm a huge fan. They've just done a fabulous job of working within some of those communities. But we've had mm-hmm. no success on the ocean front, zero. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, the program in New Jersey, the barrier islands don't want them to come anywhere near. They're like, oh, no, 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 you know, yeah. not out here. So uh, but let me just say, I think, I think it, it completely – serious observation and i think uh, hard to refute that because if you look at where retreat the examples of retreat that have been discussed and that come to mind for me the al de jean Charel, uh, community down in the mississippi delta which is an an indigenous primarily indian native american community uh, but not wealthy up up in alaska you see some retreat up in but again these are not these are not big time dollar investment properties. Um, I'm trying to think with you, is there an example where we've done that? And I, I'm not sure that there is. And it, it calls into it. What, it, what, you're, what I think it does for me is you're connecting political power and political influence and money to the decision making of shoreline management to not a bad Rob, not you're not nuts to a that. to a form of socialism where the federal government is. <laughs> Pumping sand on the beach. Well, yeah, for the rich. Hey, I mean, hey, we hey, get to Gilbert Gall here. Rob Young did not say socialism. <laughs> no, that was that was that was, that was uh, co-host Tyler Buckingham over here. <laughs> but Rob, uh, uh, go ahead. I, I think that um, you know, to me, I I believe in markets. It, you know, I mean, I I'm a good old-fashioned American capitalist in a lot of ways. And I believe that markets can solve problems. But in order for those markets to function the way that we would like them to, um, those markets have to be incorporating all the costs of doing business and incorporating the cost of the risk to that particular market. And what I see right now, the biggest problem for not having retreat on the ocean front in many places is that as long as outside dollars are coming in to subsidize the main exposure to that market and the primary risk to investors, then you have a subsidized market. And that's what we have on the ocean front. It is uh, it is a subsidized market. The The value of those properties is not incorporating the true cost of having those oceanfront homes protected by beach nourishment project and Stafford Act uh, relief dollars that come in and put infrastructure back and things like that. So, right. you know, I would never, ever suggest that we should order anybody off of any particular shoreline. That's not how it works in America, and I don't want us to do that. And by the way, I love to go to the beach, and I take my family to the beach all the time. We're going to be down in Walton County, Florida next week. If anybody's Uh. down there, good luck finding us, but that's where we'll be. (laughs) And we're going to be in a beach house. (laughs) It's a great um, beach down there. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I love that part of our economy. But, you know, to me, the way the only way that we're ever going to have some serious discussion about taking a step back from the ocean front is when that coastal economy is forced to 
cover all the costs of all the risk of investing in those areas. And that means mm. pay for your own beach nourishment projects. And when you have to pay the full cost of those beach nourishment projects, it will be no problem in some places. Mm. It will be more difficult in other places and property values will change. That's the way okay. it's supposed to work. Let's talk about those market signals. And and I think you're, you know, again, I think this is in principle quite an accurate uh, point of view. Uh, I agree with it, that that the Federal Shore Protection Program, the injection of external money uh, muffles the market signals in a way that encourages these practices to continue uh, and these market signals uh, not to operate. Um, and I think I, I wanted to ask you about Gilbert Gall's book, The Geography of Risk. But Gilbert and Dr. Oren Pilkey, your compatriot at, at the uh, at the program for develop the study of developed shorelines, uh, have been doing some. And I've noticed this and I really wish I could be in one of these rooms when these guys sit down and do this presentation. I know they've been kind of doing doing a little bit of side by side talking road about show. road show, a little bit of road show between Gilbert Gall and, and, and Pilkey. Have, and I really have to ask you, have you seen it and what's your take on what they're talking about? Because it seems related, obviously, to this point. Um, I've seen it, man. I've did the Orrin Pilkey part of the show. I've seen for the last 40 years. I'm not sure the message has changed that <laughs> no, much. <laughs> That's true. Well, he's been, um, a, he's been a town crier for a long time. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I mean, Oren has played an incredibly important role in so many aspects of today's coastal discussion that, yeah. you know, a lot of folks would never really love to give him too much credit for. Yeah. But uh, in the state of North Carolina, for example, we the whole reason that we ban oceanfront seawalls is really yeah. related to the work that Oren was doing in the 1970s and, and 80s. Yeah. And, and, uh, Gill has, you know, really tried to take a look at the economic issues, how we're dealing with the coast in a, in a, in a way that pulls it all together in one nice tight package. And he's a very good spokesman for um, a lot of what we're talking about today. I mean, as you might imagine, Gill and I have had a lot of conversations about this over the last few years, and he's done a great job of thoughtfully packaging some of these issues into his book that is currently spurring i think a lot of conversation yeah. around the country so yeah. yeah i'm glad glad that he did it well me too and he's been on the podcast uh great reporter great writer uh, the book is called the geography of risk not to take us down a different pathway but if you're interested at uh, google up the geography of risk by gilbert gall and and take a look at it um rob i wanted to ask you about uh, the work that at the center uh, at the I'm sorry I call, always call it the Center for Developed Shorelines and I don't I just don't this is a too long a name program for the study of developed it, it's a terrible name a, and I, I, I so never I remember blame, it like who the hell named this name I do blame thing? Oren Pilkey for do that you, we There's, should blame was, him for that Oren Pilkey <laughs> did name this place back in the 1980s uh, and at at Duke, the I don't know program had a specific meeting. This the the center. It is a center. The center is, is now within the University of North Carolina system here okay. at Western Carolina University. We're still technically a, a joint venture with Duke, but yeah, the program for the study of developed shorelines. It is a 
terribly long name, um, but you know, it's it's sort of branded. So yeah, no, we, you can't. We, we hesitate to do no, away with it right, because I got it. This well, is, uh, <laughs> you know, go back going back to the mid '80s. Uh, we've been around since the mid '80s now and still kicking. So. Um, well, tell yeah. tell our listeners a little bit about what's on the top of the list for you guys these days. And looking at the research papers that you have online, are really there's several that are just great. I want to talk about if we can. But introduce the audience a little bit to the program for the study of developed shorelines at Western Carolina University. Sure. Well, thanks. Well, I think that the work that we've been doing that I view as the most important over the last five years is with our partners in the National Park Service. We have developed the tool that the National Park Service utilizes to score the vulnerability of every asset in every coastal park in the United States of America. So this is a vulnerability assessment tool that goes building by building, road by road, uh, structure by structure and scores the exposure to hazards and then the sensitivity to that exposure for a total vulnerability score. Uh, so we are here in little old Cullowhee, North Carolina. We're responsibility for scoring the vulnerability to coastal hazards and sea level rise of everything from the Statue of Liberty to an outhouse in the Everglades to a totem pole in Sitka, Alaska. Wow, that sounds fun. It, it does. Is, uh, that sounds really interesting to me. It's a great project. We feel privileged and honored to be a part of it. It the, the vulnerability assessments that we're doing, I believe, are very different than what most folks do. Uh, the word vulnerability is thrown around a lot. You know, for, in, for the most part, most people who call something a vulnerability assessment, really what they're just doing is making a map of where the flood water is going to be, whether right. it's from storm surge or from sea level rise or from yeah. overland flooding or something like that. That's been around us, a long that, time. Yeah. To, that, to us, that's exposure. And what, what uh, infrastructure managers or facilities managers, transportation plans, what they really care about is also what happens when the water gets there. So yeah. it, it, is your structure elevated? What's the uh, elevation of the first finished floor? Where are the utilities? Was it built to any storm code? Does it have any kind of engineering protection associated with it? That's a sensitivity analysis that we do building by building. And you have to combine that with all the hazards that it, it's exposed to to give an overall vulnerability score for that building. And so that's – that's what we've been doing for okay. the National Park Service. This Over the next year and a half, we will have completed the entire southeast region of the U.S., and we're working with the Park Service to incorporate those vulnerability scores directly into their short-term and long-term planning. So, you know, something is highly vulnerable – and it's not very mission important, then you probably shouldn't be spending any more money on it. Uh, on the other hand, if it's highly vulnerable and it's absolutely critical to your mission, then we need to be doing some very serious adaptation planning for that particular asset. And Got it. So that, that's um, a, a huge part of what we've been doing here for All the right. last few years. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question before you go to the next topic. And, and does that analysis and that analytical tool, obviously it, it, it would be applicable outside the park system to any, any, any situation, any geographic location, I would assume. But 
does it get you closer to that market signal clarity that you're looking for? Does that methodology introduce that uh, consideration in a better way, do you think? Or am I, or are they not related? Well, it certainly could. If everybody had this information, if, you know, if we were ever allowed to go into a resort community and do a full vulnerability assessment of all of the properties in that community, then buyers and sellers would all have equal information mm. about historical damage, historical flooding, um, and all of those factors that you might want to know about the future risk involved in purchasing a particular piece of property. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this particular tool um, would be extremely useful for that kind of market. But, you know, quite frankly, realtors would not be that crazy about this idea. And at the end of the day, private property owners who own investment property are you know, wouldn't be that excited about having no, us they, come they, in. They don't want to know. I mean, putting I, scores on that kind it of property. Seems silly, but it's true. I, I worked on the flood mitigation plan for Bolivar Peninsula years ago before it was absolutely destroyed by Hurricane Ike. Uh, and in the, it, we did a bathtub flood analysis and you know elevation and exposure to structures uh, analysis as part of the mitigation plan. And we had a local committee that we were working with. Uh, to develop the strategy in the report and and they voted not to include any of it and and they they literally would not allow that to be part of the report even though i was the author of the report uh co-author of the report i ended up submitting a minority <laughs> a descending view as an appendix to the report to include it but be, and right. it's because of the immediacy of the market implication of what you're saying that if you truly assess and you truly look at the cost structure of what's happening uh, these properties are less uh, less uh, attractive, and I think there's a whole bunch of people who don't want that to happen. Right, and I mean, you know, and that's that's the tricky part. Um, yeah. You know, again, if I, I sort of come back to my market-based argument, for for markets to really function the way we want them to, everybody has to have the same information, and you know, you really have to understand all of these things in order for prices to be adequately set and. Um, you know, for the most part, folks don't all have that information that they need. But having said that, one, we decide your question is a good one because we are in the process right now of trying to spin off this approach to asset-based vulnerability assessment to the muni- you know, municipal level, county level. And we did just complete a very nice uh, municipal vulnerability assessment for the town of Duck uh, on the northern outer banks of North Carolina, working very closely with them. It was a wonderful project. They were great to work with. And, you know, we uh, assessed the vulnerability of all the buildings in their commercial strip and all of their public assets and their roadways. And uh, I think that they're going to do a very nice job of sort of carrying that forward and developing some adaptation projects. And and they'll have a good scientific basis for arguing for whatever pots of state and federal money might be out there for resilience projects, living shorelines and elevating their roadway. And, and you know, that's really the kind of proactive information that we're trying to provide at the federal level, the community level these days. You know, uh, Rob, last time you came on the show, and I want to say it was in July, it was, it was summertime 2019, 
you had just released a hot little report, a hot little feasibility. I want to say it was a feasibility study. Well, no, it was a vulnerable. Well, no, what? Yeah, it was North Topsail Beach. You, Rob, you're going to have to re- remember. It was North Topsail Beach, and you were looking at this really, uh, this kind of gnarly zone here where. The, the buyout. The buyout zone. He costed the buyout of the structures you rather did. than it was $30 million to buy all the structures and forget the, the terminal groin. Well, why we why don't we ask him? <laughs> well, I'm just wondering. I mean, at the time, the uh, the mayor had come out. That it kind of created some stir. And uh, in the we've several months now have passed, and I would love to get an update. Has has there been any movement there? Are you uh, are you still getting mail from these guys and phone calls? Uh, how did that report? How was that report received in the community? <laughs> well, well, um, you know, I'm happy to report that uh, we thought it was an incredibly important report, both from a philosophical perspective and a practical perspective. And uh, I, you know, as far as I can tell, um, it's had no impact. <laughs> but, what, what, what do you mean? But that's no okay. impact. <laughs> well, the core is uh, going to put sand in front of that. No, they're not. That's no, not they're a, not. No, so this, yeah. Yeah, this area is outside of the project because it is in the Coastal Barrier Resources system. So this portion of North Topsail will not be receiving sand as a part of that federal project, although they may be gifted some of that sand as it makes its way right. down the shore towards the north end of the island. So, you know, that part of topsail is still extremely exposed and and problematic and is is always going to be until they decide to do something sensible well it's a little bit like the keys maybe uh you you know in the although it's uh the economics are different but if you're looking for a place where a a buyout uh opportunity makes good sense uh north topsail beach in the area next to the inlet there and folks for the folks who don't know, this is a little bit of an insider conversation here, but we're talking about that $230 million Topsail Island project uh, that spans from Topsail Beach through Surf City, doesn't quite reach North Topsail Beach. And and this community has been struggling, North Topsail Beach, with shoreline erosion and the threat to structures, loss of structures for you know a decade or more. It's a pretty new town. Um, and Rob's analysis was, you know, it's just a better deal to buy the houses in the most vulnerable part of the community and get them out of the way and quit trying to stabilize a very dynamic shoreline with an inlet. And uh, it's not a bad example of where uh, strong consideration of relocation of structures is. This ought to be one. on That's on the top of my list. Uh, it, I mean, if we can't do... A successful buyout program in North Topsail Beach, North Carolina. I don't, you know, on yeah. the ocean front. If we're looking, you know, here we're talking about examples of where we would be doing this with oceanfront resort property. That's primarily investment property. Yeah. And you know, and it, and if you can't justify it for North Topsail, then you'd have a hard time doing it anywhere. And I, I think our report clearly showed that you can justify it. Um, and the, the, the numbers make a lot of sense. And I do believe that there are, you know, I've spoken with people who own property on North Topsail that within our targeted buyout area 
who are ready. They're, you know, they're tired. They would be happy to accept a buyout. But it's a much bigger lift to ask the local political establishment to embrace that idea. I think they would see it as political suicide. Right. Which is one of the real problems in in the execution of some of the uh, work that the that the program for the study of developed shorelines is, is advocating is there is this political component. I think you're quite right uh, that the that the politics are a and this is not in a negative way. I mean, I, I just think we have to accept the reality that public decision making involves certain different weird considerations that sometimes uh, could be described as irrational or let's say that they're not scientifically sound. Um, but let's shift. I wanted to, I, I got to ask you about this. And so for folks out there, Rob is on LinkedIn at Rob Young, R-O-B with one B, Rob Young. You should look it up and look at his article. He wrote an article in January that I wanted to ask you about. And you can publish on LinkedIn. And this is really, really a good article. It's called Why Does, the, Why Does Today's Big Release of the Engineering with Nature Atlas from the Army Corps of Engineers Make Me Nervous? And uh, it's really an interesting analysis uh, along the same lines that we've been talking about. Can you can you tell our audience a little bit about what the a- uh, engineering with nature atlas is that the core released, and what is problematic about that? What's making you nervous? Yeah, what's making you nervous? So I think this release was this was January a year ago. I think. Oh right? yeah, not yeah, no. Past I'm sorry, you're right. It was January 2019. Well. You know, it's a little old. It's but timeless. It's like the Bible. It is. You know, you can read this thing <laughs> for atlas. centuries. But the, the the point is still valid, I think. And uh, and and the, the Corps Atlas, uh, I think, uh, is in line with the uh, sort of general policy goals and beliefs and advocacy of many uh, environmental organizations today. Uh, and I, I won't call anybody out specifically because they're all already mad at me for um, for that article and the fact that I keep talking about these opinions. But it's, it's basically as simple as this. Um, you know, that Atlas was making a case for uh, bringing the core in line with many other with NOAA and many NGOs in embracing the use of quote-unquote, green infrastructure. And depending on who you ask, this can be everything from beach nourishment projects and dune building um, to living shoreline projects, uh, planting salt marsh, putting in oyster gabions and planting marsh behind it, uh, uh, oyster breakwaters, just a, a wide variety of ways to combine sort of hard and soft elements to stabilize shorelines right and and i think that um let me start by saying that first of all you know if you can protect a shoreline with salt marsh as opposed to a a vertical bulkhead i think that's awesome and you know if 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 you ask me to choose between the two i'm gonna choose the living shoreline that's great um what what i worry about and, and have worried about is the the degree to which we have just embraced this um, this effort to stabilize shorelines? Period. Um, yeah. So there have been you know a lot of quote unquote green infrastructure projects uh, post Sandy in uh, the estuaries of New York and New Jersey, 
And uh, in North Carolina, in Pamlico, Albemarle Sound, we're doing a lot of this. Chesapeake Bay is filling up with Living Shorelines projects, uh, trying to, uh, you know, use a, a mixture sometimes of some low-profile hard elements and planting of some green elements like salt marsh grasses, of, mm-hmm. depending upon your setting. And so, so that's all great, but. You know, I fear that um, two things. One is that, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's the job of environmental organizations to be stabilizing shorelines. Um, And there are a few that, to me, have embraced it a little bit too wholeheartedly. And uh, so if we have our environmental groups out there basically stabilizing the shorelines of private property – um, for you know, a minimal environmental benefit. Well, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable in general. And the way it makes me uncomfortable is because if our primary goal hmm. is to have these ecosystems around for the long run, so if, if what we want to do is in 2100, we still want to have some salt marsh left, we still want to have estuaries, beaches, um, all of these coastal habitats that provide fisheries and other environmental services. Well, living shorelines will not be the way to protect those habitats and to provide us with those fisheries because every living shoreline that we build has an expiration date as soon as we build it. So, you know, you do a nice installation of some oyster gabions and some salt bars, but sea level still rises two, three feet by 2060 or 2080. That living shoreline is gone. True enough. But, and, you know, th- th- this is, you know, and I'll, I would just say as when listening to that description, I don't, again, factually disagree with that sort of analysis. But what it what it tells me, I mean, here's my question. Here's what makes me a little bit nervous is, you know, when we, when there's a when there's a shift we, we, in this conversation, in the dialogue, the long term conversation about how to respond to climate change, we begin to move away from harder structures into things that are more designing with nature. We had, which is a famous book, we had the we had the dean of the UPenn College of uh, Design on to talk about designing with nature again, the re-release of that book. from Designing 50, with Nature Now. Designing with Nature Now, which came out recently, a re-release of uh, Colin McGuinn, is it? No, I forget that guy's name. God. But anyway, but we're starting to see this shift. And, of course, the imperfections of it become real. And it does, as you say, att- uh, uh, sort of diminish the the focus on whether or not there are other things we should be considering like making room for the shoreline to advance into new areas and that is the longer term uh fate of the shoreline as sea levels rise but rob you got to take progress where you can get it i think this is important and i know you're saying that 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 given the choice of a vertical wall and a living shoreline and an oyster reef and a, a marsh you'd absolutely go with the living shoreline approach but I'm sort of of the mind that this is a progression of thinking, and this step is really important one that's occurring. Anyway. So I, I'm not going to necessarily quibble with, with that point, um, and I think it is very important for people to understand. I'm not saying don't build living shorelines, right. so I'm not taking an extreme position on no. this. I am saying 
don't take your eye off the ball and spend all of your money and efforts building right. living shorelines because that is a losing effort over the long run. It may be, it may be very important over the short run for maintaining yeah. some ecosystem services. But at the end of the day, if we do not allow some of these systems to move and set aside places for these marshes, uh, upland wetlands, and estuaries to expand into, then we are going to right. lose them. And what I worry about is yeah. that these transitions are going to happen more quickly than we realize and that we might not have as much time for that sort of mindset change that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. We might not have enough time to gradually then take that next step from building living shorelines to allowing the shorelines to move. That's yeah. my concern. Got it. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, we need to be doing both. We need to seriously be purchasing land, setting aside lands that are adjacent to these coastal habitats to allow for their expansion or we're going to lose them. And then where we need to make the hard choices because we have to hold true lines in place, let's do it with green infrastructure. Um, even though that whole, that even, you know, if you want to be a little bit of a purist, the idea that marshes our beaches and dunes are infrastructure also, um, makes me a little bit nervous because, Mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you design, when you design with make, when you design with nature, your goal is still storm damage reduction. It's not to replicate nature. So if you look at the dunes mm. that the Corps has built in New Jersey and on Long Island, I mean, these things are 30-foot-high trapezoids. Yeah, They're not freaking dunes. They're no, hate, <laughs> it's like giant that. sand dikes. I want the engineers <laughs> to loosen up a little bit and quit making everything so straight and trapezoidal. It looks terrible. But I know I, it's that's a different <laughs> – that's a different, uh, you know, cat. But let me, let, I want to give you a flicker of hope because we had on the show at the Social Coast Forum uh, a guy named Skip Stiles, and he's the executive director of an organization called Wetlands Watch in Norfolk, Virginia. In Virginia, yeah. And you might know Skip, but an area that is, as he put it, one of the highest, uh, is facing one of the highest levels of, of uh, sea level rise in the country. And Skip is doing exactly what you're describing, which is hustling up on the shoreline to create space for the estuary and the shoreline to migrate landward by getting people out of the way. And and it was really interesting to talk to Skip because I said, you know, when you became the head of Wetlands Watch as an environmental group, I kind of thought, you know, you're going to be sticking Spartina in the mud. And he said, no, I'm a, I'm a property transactions guy now. And this is what it takes. But there are people who are executing this approach that you're talking about. And I don't know how many skip styles there are out there, but do you? <laughs> are there, are, is anybody else doing it? And are you aware skips effort is really, really interesting to me. Um, I don't think that there are a ton of people uh, like skip out there. I do think that, um, you know, he, the Tidewater Virginia area, um, that's my home base, by the way. I, I grew up on the Virginia Peninsula, and um, you know this is a, an area that tends to lean pretty conservative, but it's a bunch of no-nonsense, practical folks, and mm. it's a, one of the results of having the Department of Defense uh, as the primary driver of your economy is that 
you know, one thing I like about DOD is that they don't really have time for the luxury of being overly political about or ideological and the, and the no. need to, to, to adapt. And so, you know, I think some of the, the, the place we can look to for a lot of leadership in the country right now is in the state of Virginia is in the Tidewater, Virginia area. And the, the seriousness that they are taking coastal hazards, rising sea level and the need for adaptation at, at, at every level of government right now, you know, everything from the governor's office um, and his uh, resilience officer, um, Ann Phillips, d- down to uh, action like what Skip is doing at the local level and even within the municipalities, you know, the city of Virginia Beach has taken some very concrete moves lately to try and keep people from building in places that are dumb. And so, yeah, I think that's a uh, that is a good part of our country to be keeping an eye on over the next few years for sure. Did you have you taken a look at and this was in Coastal News today this week? Uh, and it's a story about what Virginia is doing in response to sea level rise. The state announced a hundred and twenty point five million dollar program to combat uh, combat climate change and sea level rise. Uh, I have not dug deeply into what they're doing. Have you have you had a chance to look at what Governor Ralph uh, Ralph Northam has done in, in in making this commitment at all? And, and is there anything interesting in what what he's doing? Uh, I have not honestly taken a look at the details of that particular plan. I mean, for, for me, the most important thing that's happened in my home state over the last few years is just the simple willingness of everybody of all political stripes in the state to be talking about these issues and um and actively pursuing rules regulation and policy that will try and make things better in the future so that's you know that's that's the first place to start right is being able to have those open conversations and really feel like everybody's on the same team pretty much well, Rob, uh, we're coming up here on an hour, so I, I want to. I've got a couple more questions, though. I want to. I want to throw at you, but you know, we're we're kicking off. This is your first appearance of 2020 on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast. Hope to surely we'll have you on again, but uh, we're we're kicking off a new decade of uh, life here on planet Earth, and I would just love to know what you are. What has you excited? What 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 are you really motivated by right now? Where do you see any trends emerging? Um, clarity from the fog of of uncertainty here. What's what what do you have? What are you looking forward to in this coming decade? I know when we were at ASBPA, you were asked a question about uh, what you would hope to see in the coming. I believe it was decade, and you talked about. Uh, being able to use the word retreat openly and that it would be an open part of the discussion. Uh, so I know that that's on the record and you're already on the record with that, but um, I'm, I'm interested in other trends you might be seeing. Well, um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I'll be honest. I have a very difficult time imagining what the next 10 years are going to be like in my field in sciences in general in government in this country 
Um, the, the last 10 years, the last five years have been just a whirlwind of changes. And I, I have a very difficult time answering that question. I will say if I, want to truly make myself optimistic, which is what I like to be, because being pessimistic makes you uh, frown and sad, and I, I like to be happy. So um, I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old son, and I hang around with uh, people that age a lot, and I work at a university and interact with students between the ages of 17 and 22 quite a bit. And um, what makes me optimistic, I think, is uh, those young people. And, um, you know, if there's hope, I think it's going to come from um, all these folks who are much younger than us and who believe largely in science and truth and facts and uh, that decisions should be made based on data and facts and who aren't particularly beholden to some of the old baggage that has made our, our lives. I'm 57. Okay. That's, um, that's where I am in my world. And, um, you know, when I want to be optimistic about where things are going, that's that's where I look. And if I want to, if you want me to answer that question from a practical perspective, you know, I would say that a, a lot of the the good work is going on at the local level, in the municipalities, and some counties in the country. And uh, I think the world of the folks who work in those offices and local planners. Um, you know, if uh, if we could um, let them do their jobs the way they see uh, fit a little bit more and have some of the elected officials get a little bit out of the way, I think things would go really well. That's so, good. Uh, I, I don't know if that's an argument for the deep state. I, I'm not talking about <laughs> – I'm not sure if the deep state exists at the local level. We want the young but, state. But I am always impressed when I have an opportunity to work um, in small municipalities and at the county level. We're working in Horry County, South Carolina right now. I'm impressed with the people, the professionals who work in local government, um, planning emergency management and shore protection. And um, so for me, that's that's where the action is and that's where my optimism is. And the more we can let those people do the jobs, their jobs, the better off we'll be. You know, I think that I love it. I think it's quite appropriate to look to the next generation. Uh, we, we, we make advances one generation to the next. We leave some things undone and we pass them to the next group and say, guys, we didn't quite get a handle on this one. Can you take it from here? And I, that's the way that that's the way the world works. And I think it's quite appropriate. And uh, there's a lot of energy. Uh, people are are uh, seeing what's happening around the world and uh, it's motivating. And uh, I suspect there's going to be a continued increase in the, the focus on the issues that you care about. Uh, so before we wrap up, Rob, because you're in North Carolina and we're starting March Madness and uh, there's you know, if there's a basketball state in the country, I'd say North Carolina is probably in the top couple. 
A couple coastal states. Indiana, Indiana. also a, a, a Great Lakes coastal state. That's right. Uh, California, Massachusetts. Got... The Naismith Hall of Fame basketball uh, hails from Massachusetts. Huh. Uh, Springfield, uh, huh. coastal state. I wonder if we charted how many NCAA champions were coastal. What it would turn out to be. I think we'll. Uh, <laughs> North Carolina has got quite a few of them just by themselves. <laughs> But Rob, uh, you you were affiliated with the great folks at Duke University through this program. Uh, what's your take on on the upcoming NCAA tournament, and how are how are how are the North Carolina teams looking? <laughs> well, it's it's uh, been a little bit of an off year, uh, supposedly in the Atlantic Coast Conference this year, and in particular with our uh, friends in Chapel Hill, um, who. Uh, you know, usually add a lot of excitement to the conference race. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't know what the prospects are for, uh, for our North Carolina basketball teams in this year's NCAA tournament. The, my, uh, my boys at Duke right now are having that typical end of the year slump where everybody seems to be, uh, a little bit tired and confused while the other teams are just getting energized. And uh, I don't mean to say that to be criticizing the players, of course. Um, um, you, you know, Coach K would I, not if, approve if, of that. If, if I really, if I really want to stir the pot, I'll say that, you know, one of the things that's as a Duke fan, since I was a little boy, one of the things that has uh, uh, been really hard for me to deal with over the last few years is the whole one and done era. I mean, right. I, I can't even remember yeah. um, the, the, the panoply of Duke players that have marched through that program over the last five years. And, no more, no uh, more Christian Lightners, you know, the senior you know, we, and, 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 you know, that whole team, those, those guys yeah, hung I mean, around. We used to, get to know those guys and fall in love with them. Okay. Maybe not Leitner, but, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless you're a dookie, then those guys did. <laughs> Everybody. No, else no, I, I, there were, yeah, there were a lot of dookies that weren't necessarily that. I mean, he was, I think it was unfairly player, maligned but, is my own personal opinion, but, but yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't, I don't like this, you know, I don't like the one and done thing. I, I don't like the fact that we're doing it at Duke. Um, and you know, I mean, it's great for us to be the D league for the NBA. We've got more NBA players from Duke in, than we've ever had right now. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. Sure. Um, I, 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 you know, I just, I fall in love with the guys who stay with us for four years and, and I look forward to that day, which may be coming again, where the model goes back to, something where um we we have uh those those folks who want to go straight to the nba have a way to do that and those who want to spend a little bit of time in college um come and spend a little bit of time in two year minimum why not you know because you recruit these guys they're great and you might as well the fans deserve to have these teams stick together and i mean you know unc suffering right now because they all their great players leave and they're they're every year is a rebuilding year well in the spirit of our discussion on uh, markets i would suggest that we we need to start paying the players a little bit so that they can stick around yeah and, no i'm a and keep it viable but i'm a fan uh rob one of the things that i've i've been just dying to ask a a, a basketball fan on on a beach podcast has to do with with uh East Coast defense, you know, there's this notion of the East Coast being defensively uh, specialists 
And on the West Coast, it's about offense. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on what, where does that come from? Yeah. And, and to, you know, what's going on there with the East Coast D and the and, and right. the West Coast offense? What's right. going on there? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wonder whether that's true or not. Um, uh, I think it's the Appalachian it, it, Mountains, you know, like defense couldn't cross the apple everybody who went west were the free thinkers they were the fast break guys you know uh, if i mean if what we're doing here is now switching our podcast a little we are. bit of basketball it's now it's sports and coastal podcast I, now i might i might guess that 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 feeling sort of goes back to a time when uh the uh, the Big East Conference, as it once was, oh, yeah. with Georgetown and St. John's Ewing. and Villanova. I mean, that was a rough and tumble right. physical conference. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, during those particular years, I mean, the Pac-10 was a run-and-gun show. And, um, uh, you know, I don't think that you can uh, extend that that model to all the teams on either coast but um certainly during that period of time using those two very prominent conferences you know that's that would be my guess was man those uh that big east when they were at the peak of their game uh those were some of the most physical basketball games uh, that you could ever imagine it was kind of like the D- detroit pistons and bill lambeer right. i mean yeah. those were Mahone. battles of basketball it was that's my guess i think i think that's a real fine guess and uh it's just interesting to me you know we we uh the east coast has a vibe to it and it it, it is reflected in the game of basketball uh, and the West Coast has a vibe in it, and it is reflected in the game of we, basketball there. Now, it's not to say that you don't get some defensive juggernauts coming out of the West and well, out of Duke the Duke would say they're a great defensive team. They've always K, K is always about that. Well, I think so. I think so. But I also think with the one and done era, yeah. college basketball, the intensity has changed, and there's nothing. There was nothing like having, a, a, you know, you'd bring in your the coach would bring in the the five seniors, right, and would lock it down, and you know, there's a trusting relationship there that they had, and uh, when the emphasis shifted to one and done recruitment. Hmm. Um, I think that, you know, just the nature of, of uh, before college basketball, AAU, you know, this developmental stuff for high school that the, the top recruits play in, hmm. it's so offensively uh, focused. And, um, you know, I think there are some other trends there as well. I mean, uh, the game has shifted so much in the past few years with the Golden State Warriors out of San Francisco. Right. And Steph Curry, a, uh, I believe he was he a Carolina guy. He was. There you go. How about that? He was. He was. He played at Davidson. 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 That's the name. That's right. Well, you know, this is Tyler and I fool around with this theory all the time about the the influence of coast on culture and the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast, and there are significant differences, which we believe is attributable to the geomorphology of the shoreline. That's exactly right. It all comes down to how you that sands You know, moving. it's the surfing in California. You got the sun. You got the, it's different. You know, you get out to the barrier island. Yeah, you just it's a little a swampy, a little marshy. You know, it's a little more, you know, it's different. It's, yeah. Anyway, so Rob, uh, next time we have you on, we'll talk about volleyball. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
I hope no, you guys we... don't have any listeners in the Midwest because uh, we, we've we've completely skipped them. Oh no, <laughs> around the Great Lakes. Well, Central part of the look, Marquette on the Great Lake. There's some good Great Lakes teams. Absolutely, we we haven't forgotten you over there, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, there will be plenty of plenty of opportunity to talk about. I don't know what you really say about Kansas. What explains that? There's nothing to do in Kansas. That's why you're good at basketball in Kansas. It's I'm not landlocked. Not sure. Well, Lawrence, Kansas is sitting right in the middle of the Great Cretaceous Seaway in the United States of America. Thank you. So, really? you want to go with that? Great. That's to remind people I'm a geologist. That's right. The Cretaceous Seaway. That would be the inland sea that flooded the continent. Is that it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's why there's fossils in Austin. Why it's, you can find it's all sea urchin. sedimentary rocks. All That's sedimentary right. rock. You can find it. Really, you can in my yard. You find a sea urchin fossil in my yard. Um, but anyway, Rob, thanks for taking the time to be on the American Shoreline podcast. It was a blast. And we really think that this discussion about what you're talking about on how to respond to sea level rise is, is so important. It's only going to get more intense. And it's great to have an expert come on the show and walk us through the latest in the thinking. So thanks a lot. And we appreciate it and look forward to having you back on, Rob. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Anytime.